This episode of Angular Air is sponsored by Auth0, authentication made simple for developers. Modern authentication and identity can be hard, but Auth0 makes it easy. With Auth0, you can enable login with any social provider, have multi-factor authentication, single sign-on, and passwordless login all at the flip of a switch. Find out how to add authentication to your Angular 1 or 2 app in under 10 minutes at auth0.com forward slash Angular. Hello and welcome to Angular Air. Today we are talking about migration from Angular 1 to Angular 2. So there's a lot to discuss. For our special guest to get today, we have on the one and only Taro. Hello. Tara, I, I know pretty much everybody who's listening uh, knows who you are, but why don't you give an introduction to yourself? Sure. So my name is Tero Parviainen. I'm a JavaScript developer based in Helsinki, Finland, doing lots of independent contra contracting and writing books and articles and all kinds of playing around with, with uh, JavaScript and software in general. And also, uh, on, as a guest panelist today, we have Martin. Martin, you want to introduce yourself? Yeah, sure. Hi, guys. So uh, I'm Martin. I'm software engineer from Prague, Czech Republic. And I'm running ng-party meetup. And I'm also the author of ng-metadata. Can you hear me, guys? Yep. Yeah, yeah. You sound, sound good, definitely. OK, cool. So. Uh, Taro, for those of you that, I mean, he gave a quick summary, but I'll kind of add to uh, what he said. Uh, Taro basically does everything. He um, is a master of all frameworks. He does just crazy talks where, and, and projects. Uh, the first time I, I met or, or um, heard about you, really, Taro, was when you did the one of um, basically building your own Angular uh, 1. Yeah, uh, and that was just um, an amazing talk, an amazing project. Oh. <laughs> um, and uh, I, I think you've done a number of ones since then. Actually, most recently at ngconf. Um, do you want to talk a little bit about what you, with the talk that you gave at ngconf? Sure. So that talk was called "Generative Art in Angular 2," which no one understood before I gave that talk, which was interesting. But it was basically about using Angular for doing things that are not necessarily useful, but that are just fun to do because it's fun to play with technologies and you, you tend to learn them as you play with them. So I was doing this sort of thing with uh, NG Animate and Web Audio, doing all kinds of visualizations and, and sounds and things like that. So I was just play, basically playing around with Angular and then did a talk about that. And it, it, it was pretty fun. I had people basically using a little web app I was using with their mobile phones, making sounds, and and then I had some algorithms generating actually uh, some ambient music uh, based on RxJS observables and some random numbers in that room. So it was an interesting talk in general. Yeah, I mean, that. I thought it was really interesting. It actually, I mean, so many different aspects, but uh, the one thing... Uh, I, I thought it was just funny was that on top of everything else that you did, uh, you used a new version of NG Animate that pretty much no one outside Matthias, really, in the world <laughs> had been using. Yes. Uh, so that was pretty impressive. That was pretty difficult yeah, to figure out how it was, how it worked because there was no documentation, uh, of course, because it's still not merged yet at this point. So it's, it's very, very kind of... Uh, 
Well, you had the best type of documentation, basically just the code itself. You had to look through that to figure out what was going on, right? Yeah, what's fun about the new ng-animate is you can basically just look at what someone has defined as animations and it kind of makes sense when you read it. So it's, it's a pretty good API. Uh, cool. So, yeah, I mean, that has nothing to do at all with today's topic, but I just thought that that was interesting and something more, more recent. So we're going to break for a moment for a message from Angular Class. This episode of Angular Air is sponsored by Angular Class. If you're looking to learn the latest and greatest in modern web development techniques, or you need Angular 2 training, then sign up today at angularclass.com. Welcome back. Let's pick it up where we left off. Uh, yeah. Let's get on topic here today and talk about migration strategies. And to start off, um, maybe Taro, can you give us kind of an, a high-level overview of what are the high-level approaches that people can take to migration from Angular 1 to Angular 2? Mm. Okay, so I guess the most high-level question you, you can ask yourself is whether it makes sense for you to do something like that or not. That That's kind of uh, the first question you have to ask because, as everyone knows and everyone has been talking about for the past couple of years, these are very two very different uh, frameworks, even though they have the same name. There's really nothing on an API level that's common between them. And even architecturally, they are uh, quite different. So, so you kind of have to make that assessment of whether that makes sense for you. And, and that you can begin answering, I think, uh, by looking at what kind of Angular 1 application you have because those can come in various shapes and forms, as we all know who have used, used Angular 1. Because uh, we used to do things very differently in general with Angular like two or three years ago than what we do now with uh, the new component stuff and all kinds of things that we have there. So, so the difficulty of migrating an application depends a whole lot on what kind of application it is. It's kind of pretty easy if you have an application that's all component-based and all, all kind of uh, architected with the best practices of today with the new component APIs and isolate scopes and all kinds of things. Uh, but then when you start deviating from that architecture, it gets, gets difficult uh, pretty quickly when you do things like have all kinds of nested uh, inherited scopes and controllers and templates, or if you do a lot of DOM manipulation in, in weird places, or if you use a lot of open source Angular 1 libraries that don't wait, necessarily wait, wait, have. No one really, no one does, really that, does that, right? No, 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 of course not. Or at least we don't talk about it, <laughs> because we shouldn't be doing that. But yeah, I mean, there is all kinds of third-party open source libraries you use for things like forms and all kinds of things that might not might not have the exact counterparts in Angular 2. And then there are all these weird things that we use for Angular 1, like parsing or compiling things at runtime, or all kinds of things that you tend to do when you work on an application for a long enough time. You, you kind of get into these dark corners of the of the uh, the app framework, and those are the kinds of parts that will will. Uh, be difficult. But yeah, I mean, I guess, you, I guess. Yeah. Oh, wait. Oh, wait. Are you guys hearing an echo? I'm not. Can you mute your line for a second? Yep. All right. Uh, yeah, I guess that's it. 
Um, we'll just remember to mute each other's lines as we're, as we're going here. Uh, so you bring up a bunch of interesting points, and I think the, the first one that I, I definitely see with my own apps and, and a lot of the, actually more so even other people out there, um, is that if your Angular 1 app is sort of built in the sort of Angular 2 mindset of components and everything like that, it actually, there, you have a lot more options. It's a lot easier, and, and we'll get into some of those. Um, but for some people, it can be really painful. I, th I think the most, uh, you know, I talked to a lot of people at ngconf, and the most pain I heard were from the people who, you know, they, they built for so long without having, you know, strong standards. You know, John Papa's style guy for Angular 1 wasn't always around, and, and even when it was, people weren't necessarily uh, following it, right? So they have like this like crazy mess. So before we talk about like the ideal use case of alignment, like you have somewhat an alignment between Angular 1 and Angular 2, where do you start if, if you are just like one of these people on the totally other side of the fence that you built things in a completely different way that doesn't align at all with Angular 2 kind of style, componentized style and everything like that, you know, just one big controller, let's say, uh, with everything in it. Uh, where do you even start then? Is it just basically for those people it's uh, throw it away and start again? Or, or, or what do you think there, Taro? Um, I wouldn't say you need to throw it away because that's pretty much exactly the situation I've been in. I, I did a big application, started three years ago, which I did all wrong at first. There was a lot of huge controllers and huge nested structures of controllers and templates there and, and all kinds of things. And I've basically spent the last year uh, slowly kind of migrating or refactoring it towards a component architecture. And I haven't even begun upgrading it yet, but but uh, I've been just cleaning it up. And uh, even though, even if we didn't ever upgrade that application, it's now much better than it was a year ago. So it's just, just a good idea to try to find these these um, places in your application where you can, that you can kind of chop off to components and then isolate, put agilet scope around them and organize the files according to the style guide. And that's work you can do. It's not easy always because you're basically doing refactoring code that can be messy. But it's the same kind of work that people have been doing with their messy software for decades. And there's a lot of literature that can help you there, like the books about refactoring and working with legacy code. They apply surprisingly well in these cases. So it's just a matter of doing a whole lot of work that, that will pay off whether you want to actually upgrade or not. Yeah, I completely agree with the uh, kind of componentized model of Angular 2 and kind of implementing that. There's just benefits there regardless, like you're saying. Um, actually, a question to you, Martin, to kind of bring you into this conversation because, you know, when you are thinking about just purely in terms of your Angular 1 app and just improving your Angular 1 app to make things easier, not necessarily talking about integration with Angular 2 yet, um, I know that you've been working on a, a library for ng-metadata that does part of that. There's also, uh, you know, another library, ng-forward, that uh, you can also write Angular 2 style in Angular 1. Um, can, can you give us a background to, like, your library and how it, it's similar or different to than ng-forward and other similar things out there? Yeah, sure. So, basically, uh, when I found ng-forward, I wanted to use it in our enterprise huge project, but it was just unfeasible because it didn't cover a lot of things from Angular 1. So I just 
told myself, like, maybe I can write my own library from the scratch and purely for TypeScript. So I just took uh, Angular to source code and used their decorators for all that stuff. So that's also one of the great things that you can say because I'm using the same code base as Angular 2 and it's run with Angular 1. So it's really not so similar, but it is, but it isn't. <laughs> architectural designs. When you say you're using the same code base as Angular 2, what, what do you mean by that? Uh, I just copy-pasted all the decorator stuff, all the how they are creating dependency injection, and everything works seamlessly with Angular 1. So basically, I backported everything. Recently, I also backported uh, change detector reference, so you can do crazy stuff in Angular 1, like... Uh, uh, Manually triggering the digest cycles behind the uh, behind the scenes and a kind of optimiza optimizations uh, in your code base. So that's that's pretty cool stuff. But uh, yeah, uh, as as Tero said, uh, also our code base was in very bad shape. So <laughs> we slowly started to refactor everything. And my opinion on this is basically you have to separate your applications into those smart and dumb components. And NGMS data can help you with that because it uh, literally forces you to write component-driven architecture. And by doing that, your team is learning basically Angular 2 syntax. And then when the right time comes for us, because uh, we just cannot uh, migrate or run hybrid Angular 2 Angular 1 application right away because our manager and other thing and other other enterprise thing things. So, yeah. Uh, I mean, when the coming will, when the point will come in time, and our, our whole app will be in ng metadata and TypeScript, it will be like no-brainer. I'm planning to add uh, improved support for ng upgrade, so it will be really just replacing the the references for imports from ng metadata slash core to uh, Angular slash core, which is which is pretty amazing. Yeah, that's cool. I, I definitely like the idea of starting to build your Angular 1 app in kind of Angular 2 style, making your life easier. And the thing is that when you do that, you can do it in a much smaller, more granular, fa granular fashion, like just kind of one class at a time and that type of thing. What about um, Taro? What are your thoughts on, I, I've heard a couple people suggest using TypeScript in your Angular 1 app uh, to help with the transition as well. Other people I've heard say not to do that because they've tried it and it's like a nightmare, especially when you have a large existing app and you try to convert it to add types and you're wrestling with you know types and that type of thing. Um, what, what are your thoughts on this, using TypeScript in Angular 1? Yeah, that's an interesting question. That's how I started to do it early on. And it, I wasn't really happy with what was happening because that was the first time I actually tried TypeScript, and it turned out that isn't really the best way to learn TypeScript, but just to use it with Angular 1, which isn't really designed to be used with TypeScript. You have typings, but they're third-party typings, and then it kind of shows that they are not kind of core of the framework. Um, but for one, one thing where it might help, particularly is, is if you are using uh, something that doesn't yet have any kind of module system. So if you're not yet in ES6 or, or, or basically Babel, where you can do imports and exports, you'll want to use that or or uh, TypeScript to get the modules because Angular 2 is just 
way more pleasant to use from with with the module system than from the UMD bundles. All the APIs are just much much nicer. But what I didn't have when I started was was Martin's library, which basically builds on top of TypeScript and adds APIs on Angular One that are actually kind of designed to work well with TypeScript or or just be TypeScript friendly, which is not what Angular One provides out of the box. So that's that's what I didn't have, and what people now have as an option. So that I think right now it's much easier to to do the TypeScript first thing than than it was six months ago when I was getting started with this. And Martin, do you guys use TypeScript? Yeah, the ng metadata works uh, primarily with TypeScript, and you can also use ES6, but I don't, I don't think it's worth to stay on just on ES6 if you are planning to go to ES6, and if you have large code base, I think it's definitely worth it to use optional types because, in my experience, JavaScript is cool, but eventually you need those types. So, so, so if you did that, then um, did you just quiet the um, turn off the warnings initially? Because I, I mean, there's no way you just turn TypeScript on. I mean, even though technically you could turn it on with your existing code base, right? Like, it's going to spit out a million errors. Um, yeah. So, so did you turn it off initially, or did you actually just spend a ton of, like, days or weeks, like, adding all the right typings? What, what did you do? Uh, so we, we are using Webpack uh, as a bundler, and when we started the, the migration, there wasn't the option for LOJS in TypeScript. So we just did empty imports of the old uh, JavaScript files, and file by file, we transferred every file and module directive component to separate modules and then added ng metadata. So, yeah, I mean, the transition wasn't, it isn't, isn't too hard because every, everyone can, can say that it's, it's pretty hard to move to TypeScript because you have to rename all the files, there are all those errors, but it isn't, isn't entirely true. But yeah, I guess it depends. What about you, Tara? Do you have any tips for moving to TypeScript with Angular 1 from an existing code base? Well, mostly just that, you know, I would try to find even like a small project where I actually try TypeScript first with something easier than actually getting started with TypeScript at the same time as you do this migration because you kind of, it's hard to learn it at the same time as you're trying to work on this stuff. And you definitely don't put on the, uh, or turn off the no implicit any because you want to keep those implicit any uh, annotations there. So you don't have to start by annotating your whole code base, which is then, if you do that, then it's not, you're, you'll be doing nothing else for the next week. <laughs> <laughs> right. Which might be a useful exercise, but it's, it's not what I would do. Yeah, that would not be fun. Okay. Um, let's get into the integrations uh, side. So, like, <clears throat> once you talk about, you know, eventually you do want to start building actually in Angular 2. And, I, and I've seen a number of different both uh, approaches, different ways of integration. Um, you know, Tara, you want to give us kind of a, a you know, a high level there of what are the different ways, like, when you have your, you want to start building something, some part of your app in Angular 2 and have it work with some part of your app in Angular 1, uh, what are the different options there? So I think the main main tool to use there is this module called ng-upgrade, or, or just upgrade, which comes with Angular 2. Uh, that is basically this, actually quite a small 
module that comes with it that allows running Angular 1 and Angular 2 side by side in the same application. So you begin this integration by pulling in Angular 2 and Angular upgrade to your Angular 1 project and then you switch your application bootstrap from the Angular 1 uh, bootstrap to the Angular 2 upgrade bootstrap. And then you have an application that still is purely Angular 1, but it's actually running through this uh, hybrid uh, upgrade adapter thing. And then you can start adding in Angular 2 things into it. So, so what the upgrade lets you do is it lets you have both Angular 2 and 1 components or directives running in that UI, as well as both Angular 1 and 2 services in your injector. And you can interoperate between these in both ways. So you can use an Angular 2 component from an Angular 1 directive or vice versa, or you can inject an Angular 1 service to an Angular 2 service or vice versa. So you can kind of do it in any way that makes most sense for your application. But the way that probably makes most sense to do it if you have an option for doing that is to start a new feature or something like that with Angular 2 instead of trying to kind of migrate your existing components to Angular 2. If, if you're basically trying to, or starting a new feature or something like that, then use Angular 2 for that. You can inject your existing Angular 1 services in there. You can even use your existing Angular 1 directives there. But but doing new things is it's, uh, it's, uh, really the easiest way to do it. Now, sooner or later, you're going to want to start also migrating your existing directives and services to Angular 2. But for that, there's really no magic button you can press which will migrate them over. You, you, you will have to kind of rewrite them or at least reorganize them, them to work with, with Angular 2. But, but what NG Upgrade lets you do there is to uh, separate this work out over time. So you can do it one service today, the next one le next week, and do like actual you know, productive work in between while having your application in a functional state at, at all times. So, so NG Upgrade, it lets you do this interoperation, interoperation between these components, but it actually doesn't, let, doesn't uh, give you any uh, shortcut through that actual migration work that you'll still have to do manually. Sure, um, but if you're using NG Upgrade, wouldn't it create a rather large, uh, I, I haven't tried to use it myself, but um, is it, does it not create a very large package uh, because you have basically you know, all of Angular 1 and then all of Angular 2 and all of your both apps at the same time? Uh, or is there a way of easily doing like lazy loading or something like that to kind of defer some of that? Not really. So yeah, it does create a very large package, especially right now when Angular 2 by itself with all the dependencies is very large when we don't yet really have that, that compiler stuff that Mishko was talking about at ng-conf. Uh, so yeah, it'll be a big package uh, in terms of, of the payload that you have to transfer, and, and there's I don't see any any easy way around that at the moment. Well, there's a couple of different things that I, I, I've heard is uh, like uh, variation. So I, I have heard some people that you know, the, so the ng upgrade is focused you know at that UI layer when you're trying to integrate the two, right? But if you're just dealing with services like non-UI stuff. Um, then you don't necessarily have to use ng-upgrade. There's other ways where basically either exposing your Angular 2 services to Angular 1 or vice versa. So have, have you kind of explored either of those paths? Uh, I haven't really, no. So um, and I don't see what, how that would let you kind of not load Angular 2 and Angular 1 both on the page. You still have to do that uh, if you, if well, you the, are. The way, the, so the way I've seen it, it, it done or, or 
um, seen some people working on this is like if you author a service in Angular 2 and then you just uh, either through Webpack or your own um, custom transpiler, you know, basically rewrap it in an Angular 1 service. So like mm -hmm. through a build step, you would expose it. So it would be the same like code underneath, but expose just like wrapped differently, basically. Right. So you do this at build time. This is kind of. Uh... Yeah. Yeah. So that only works with services. Right. Um, yeah, yeah. I guess I guess that would that would work if, if that's something that kind of makes sense in your project. And in the end, Angular is is quite has always been quite good in this sense that your Angular factory or service doesn't really uh, you don't have to inherit from some magical super prototypes or anything like that. They're just regular functions and classes. They they were in Angular one and they are in Angular two. So that that kind of makes it easier to interoperate because they're they are regular. JavaScript things which you can just just decorate with Angular stuff, and uh, in that sense, it's not not hard to use use them outside of Angular even. Yep, yep. And, and the, the one other thing that I can think of, I, at least uh, that I've I heard talking to people at ng-conf, was basically to split um, based off of routes. Um, you know, if if you have an app that you're working on. And in, instead of trying to embed them, like if, if it wasn't that you were just trying to build a component, if you actually could segment off of routes, then potentially you would have different routes and different subdomains, and then that could easily like load separate apps. So that in that case, you would be building a separate app, and you would kind of like um, try to deal with it on that level. Um, but th that's sort of just like a, I don't know whether that's a hack or not, but uh, th that seems to be like a good solution if what you're doing kind of fits into that. I mean, everybody has a different use case, right? Yeah. And that was actually, I think, the original migration plan that they, the Angular team came out with, uh, what was it, one or two years ago. They said you split them by routes and you have different sub-applications for when you do an upgrade. But that wasn't enough for most people, which is why they came up with ng-upgrade after that. But, but I, I, I'm sure it'll be enough for many people, just not everyone. We're going to take a quick break to hear about ThoughtRam. ThoughtRam. Extend your memory. Want to get up and running with the Angular framework, but don't have the time to read through all the documentation and tutorials on the internet? ThoughtRam's Angular Masterclass may be perfect for you. Check it out today at thoughtram.io forward slash training. Welcome back. Let's pick it up where we left off. Yeah, actually, one, one other interesting thing is that, uh, so I... I ran a survey right before ng-conf uh, talking about uh, migration and what people's plans were and that type of thing. And so, uh, you know, really large number of people basically said that, uh, you know, with their Angular 1 apps, they essentially didn't even plan on, at least in the foreseeable future, upgrading it at all. Like that they were just basically putting it into maintenance mode and any new business project or new thing they build in Angular 2, and this thing they would just kind of keep chugging along and hacking at it or whatever. Uh, so there, there's, there's definitely a fair number of people that have decided on that particular strategy. That's a perfectly, I think, viable choice to make because though we have all these tools, it's not free, even anything approaching free or, or even easy, you know. it's it, it is hard, and it only makes sense if you plan to have that application around for a long time, and you you want to sort of uh, take take advantage of these new things that are on Angular 2, because Angular 1 will stay around for a long time, and uh, you know it's perfectly viable 
perfectly viable platform to use and people are still starting projects in it so there's no rush to kind of escape that uh, platform at the moment yeah completely agree Agree. So, what what else have I missed? Is are there any um, libraries or tools uh, or uh, resources out there that would be good to point out that people can kind of go to to help uh, as they're thinking about their um, migrating to Angular two? So, basically, my pick for this is uh, the Teros article about the refactoring into the smart and components. I recommend everyone to read that because that's golden, that's superb content for really everyone. Yeah, that's a good one. I, I agree. I, I love that article. Um, and especially, I, I think that some people who like pay attention in the React world, um, the concept is not like totally unfamiliar. Uh, but there's a lot of people who just haven't thought of things in that way before of uh, trying to, you know, take, uh, you know, think of your components. Well, first of all, think of components in general. <laughs> But then uh, you know, the, the segmentation between smart and dumb that sort of simplifies things when you have like a lot of dumb, dumb components. So yeah, I agree. Yeah. And actually, maybe uh, Tara, maybe I'm I'm glossing over that. Can 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 you give us kind of like a just a quick overview of, of what smart and dumb components are and and uh, you basically the gist of your blog post? Yeah, so the blog post was really the smart and dumb components thing was a, like a small appendix on, on at the end of it. It was more about this whole process of refactoring your legacy Angular code base to components, which begins from the mechanical things you need to do from getting rid of ng controllers and scope inheritance and, and this kind of sharing data through this scope hierarchy. hierarchy. And then it kind of ended up at, okay, in that, okay, when you have these components, then you can start thinking about what the roles of these different components are. Because for the first time, you actually have an Angular application where you can think of data flow as something that actually makes sense, because it used to be just this uh, soup of, of washers and scopes and bindings. And, and then, then you kind of can think of components in different ways. Some of, some of them are components that just display data or, or get input from the user and don't really understand much about the context they are in or where they should send the data when it, when it kind of changes or, or how they should talk to a server or anything like that. And those are the kinds of components that, that you could call dumb components, which I think was Dan Abramov's term for those, which are you know simple, they're easy to test, they always behave the same way when you give, give them the same data. And, and you can just plug them into different contexts very easily. And then, then you have these smart components which then know much more about uh, the business logic of the application. They know which services they should talk to when, when they want something to happen and, and what, what dependencies they need and how to kind of basically act as an orchestration layer on top of these dumb components. And, and it turns out that, that it the best best results I've seen is that when you make most of your application or UI code be, be uh, these dumb components which don't really do anything much and then just have a thin layer on top of that or at the root where, where the smart stuff happens, where you actually integrate those components to your business logic. And that, that you can do easily with Angular 1 and, and of course with Angular 2, but you just have to walk this path to there from, from this current mess that you have if you are like me and made that mess two, two, two years ago. Yeah, it's kind of it's into a slightly different path of uh, thinking, but um, you know, one thing when I started 
thinking more in the component mindset. Uh, the, the first iteration, I think I, I put probably too much um, logic and too much functionality in individual components because you think in terms of like, oh, I'm just going to add every, I need to use this, I need to make this API call here. I, or like when this button, a person clicks this button or whatever. And so, okay, it's it's in the same area and that's kind of cool. Like in a way, it's, it's uh, you know, still the same thing that you do with one huge NG controller, but just kind of segmented into smaller pieces. But that what you realize is after a while is that that makes it harder to test those individual components. And really you end up duplicating a lot of stuff, like what I've noticed, like because you will have certain piece of logic in your components that like, um, since you're making everything kind of able to do stuff like right at that level, um, you know, it, it's, uh, you just end up putting a lot more in there than you necessarily have to. Uh, now, if you go the other way and you start kind of, uh, you know, like you're saying, Tarot, you know, make them very simple, thin, you know, more just like the visual layer on top of things. Um, where they're easier to test, you kind of push that that smarter logic, you know, up. And uh, one interesting thing there, once you, once you start doing it, is the whole stuff with um, NGRX and and Redux. And I know that you are a big fan of that. Uh, and this goes a little bit beyond uh, the migration stuff, but like because this is something that's kind of like in your wheelhouse, I, I'd be interested in kind of getting your thoughts on, you know, whether you usually do encourage people to go that far, like to to start doing Redux or NGRX or something along those lines, or, um, you know, it's good enough just to kind of have it at kind of a higher level component and leave it there. Yeah, I'm not sure whether I would in especially encourage it. It seems to be like that's the kind of logical conclusion of doing all of this. You push that logic away from the components, and when you have nowhere else to go, you end up with a single place, which is in Redux your reducer function or, or family of functions that you have there, which makes a lot of sense. Uh, now, whether that makes sense to actually go that far in most applications, I'm not sure. Uh, there is this one really practical benefit that you get from it, though, which we don't yet really have in Angular 2 or in Angular 1, which is the reason actually Redux came about in React, which is hot reload, basically. So, so where if you listen to what Dan Abramov has said about the origins of Redux, he wanted to have hot reload for his applications, which is he can swap or change the UI code in the application and hot swap the UI while keeping the application state around. So, so they don't have to, or he doesn't have to click around to get the UI state back when they've changed the code and it all happens instantly on the fly. Now, you can do that with Redux when your, your state is kind of pulled out from your components. So you can change the components and your state is, is held in the store and then it flows to your new components right away. So it just works. Now, it does require some infrastructure as well. You, you have to have this tooling that is, is able to hot swap your components. And that's what I'm waiting for, for someone to do for, for Angular 2 right now. And I, and I, I know. Uh, Minko Getchev has, has done a prototype on this some time ago, and, and uh, I think he's thinking about it right now as well. So, so from Redux, you get this hot reload thing, which is what I really want to, to use Redux for. Yeah. Uh, uh, Minko, you definitely have to, to make sure that this works. Actually, I, I, th I thought I saw that he did do something in the past, but that might have been an early prototype. Um, but yeah, no, I, I'll put the pressure on him, and <laughs> we'll, we'll make it make this happen for sure. 
Um, and one, one last question on this line of thinking, actually, is I, I, I never talked to you about this before, but like, um, you know, what are your thoughts on NGRX? Again, this goes beyond the uh, migration stuff, um, but I'm just you know, more curious because literally, like, this is the type of stuff that I'm working on right now, right? I'm, I'm working on migration. I'm working on like what, how I'm architecting my app and like kind of building towards the future. And like you're saying, like when you start thinking in terms of smart and dumb components, you're moving it up, and then you, you like logically think like, oh, maybe let me try out the, this Redux thing. And one of the things I, I still have not fully decided on yet is, you know, I, I kind of have started to go down the Redux route, um, but I, I still haven't fully bought in yet whether to do NGRX or Redux, you know, the reactive way of doing things or not. Uh, what are your thoughts on that? Um, I don't have a good answer for that because I haven't really done anything serious with NGRX. I've tried it quickly. But yeah, I think the main difference seems to be that it's all based on the observable RxJS thing where Redux isn't. But, but then I, and I saw some of the Redux bindings there are in Angular 2 and they also use observables, at least for some things. So they, the difference between the two doesn't seem to be as, as clear-cut as I thought in the Angular world. What, what I'll probably end up using is whoever supports hot reload first. <laughs> okay, that makes sense. <laughs> yeah, I mean, the, the, the tooling on, on the React side is, is really good, so we, we definitely have to get that on the Angular side. We'll, we'll get there, we'll get there. Yep. There's no reason why it couldn't happen. Yep. yep. Martin, anything you wanted to add? Yeah, I mean, uh, I like NGRX a lot. I'm, I'm more comfortable with the uh, observables than with the classic Redux, but <clears throat> it's a matter of taste. But yeah, I mean, NGRX uh, is trying to like, reinvent the wheel, but not really. It's just a different approach. And there are also some interesting discuss discussions between uh, Rob and Dan in uh, some of those issues and GitHub. So uh, I'll recommend everyone to check them out. Like, uh, what is the purpose of NGRX, why did it, it, it exist, uh, et cetera, et cetera. So, yeah, but uh, in my opinion, uh, it's really the right way to write your apps cool. nowadays. Yeah. Okay. Uh, let's, uh, we're going to move to picks in just a second, but um, just to uh, give a heads up, Next week, we're going to be talking with Wesley and Jesus again, talking about uh, open source development. Uh, we had a great conversation with them uh, a couple months ago, and we're going to continue that. We're going to have Chris from the UI Router project on as well, so we'll probably get an update on that. So that, that's going to be a huge action-packed show. And then the week after, we're having Jim Cummings on to talk about GraphQL, which is uh, you know something I'm not as familiar with, and I, I'm really interested to learn more about. Um, so for picks, uh, Martin, why don't you start off? <laughs> All right. So I, I already mentioned it. I highly recommend to go through the Teros blog about the smart app components, not just for uh, the purposes of migration, but overall architecture. And if you, for our Angular developers, I'll also recommend to check some uh, videos on Agadiot for React because. If you're not really familiar with component-driven architecture and you take that course about React, you will get a really good overview over why it does matter and why it is important. So, yeah. Martin, your first time on the show and you're making React recommendations, this is uh, grounds for a permanent banning. 
<laughs> no, I, I mean, uh, I would like I would like to thank React because React uh, opened your or, or eyes how it should be done. So, in this way, this is really amazing because yeah. No, I'm just joking. <laughs> I agree. No, it's a good recommendation. Um, and Tara, why, why don't you give us your picks? Yeah, so my first pick is the book uh, Refactoring by Martin Fowler, which is a software engineering classic from the 90s, which has to do with, you know, cleaning up your messes in, in code. The, the um, examples are all in Java, and it has nothing to do with the web or JavaScript, but it's, it's really timeless, and it, it applies to, to this whole discussion of cleaning up your, your Angular code as well, because it's really the same things, things that we're still doing with, with Angular this time. And my second pick has to do with um, my, my talk at ng-conf. Um, there's a really good uh, talk or conversation online by, by Brian Eno, who, who was kind of the main influence between, uh, behind that talk, who was this musician and, and artist, where he talks about all kinds of things related to, to uh, doing creative thinking and, and, and making art and how, how to just go about your, your life as, as someone who likes to do creative work. So, so that, that's really an enjoyable hour to, to spend on something. Cool. Thanks, Taro. Um, I just have one pick this week. Uh, Lucas Rebolke published a blog post uh, based off of his ng-conf um, training class on Electron, uh, building an Electron app with Angular 2, which was a great uh, workshop. And his blog post is really interesting. I'm definitely into Electron, and I've started to use some of the stuff that he's put out. So if you go to onehungrymind.com, and I'll have a link in the show notes, uh, and check that out. It is pretty cool. All right, that's it for this week. Thank you very much, Taro. Thanks, thank you, Martin. And we will see you guys all next week. I uh, hope everybody at Google I.O. is having fun. See ya. Thanks, guys. Cheers. Bye.